0: This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is South Paul.
1: So today, joining us on the podcast is Elias Cepeda. Am I saying that right?
2: Yeah, yeah, doing great. Thanks for having me on, guys.
1: All right, and you are an MMA writer, and also, well, why don't you introduce yourself to us and to our audience? Oh,
2: well, that's correct. Yeah, I'm a writer. I've uh, covered MMA and boxing for uh, for quite a while now, and uh, yeah, man, I've covered other things too, but yeah, I uh, right now I have a column for MixedMartialArts.com. Uh, and, uh, yeah, used to fight as an amateur, um, a coach as well. Now I still do jujitsu, um, but yeah, man,
1: um, I'm a writer. And how long have you been writing about combat sports?
2: Yeah. So I, uh, since I was, I think I was 21, I, I got my first job, uh, back in 2006 for, um, a site called Insidefighting.com. Uh, at the time it had some of the best other than me, it had some of the best writers in boxing and MMA and, uh, I, I got lucky uh, and, and uh, pitched them a, st- a couple stories, and I uh, got my first story published there ever. It was on Andrei Alofsky, uh, who fought last night, or fought uh, this past weekend. And uh, he was training at the school I was training at at the time, and uh, no one was really doing any reporting on him. And I knew I could get some access to him, just because I was you know, in the gym around him um, and the others every night, and that went really well, uh, just because no one was doing any real stuff on Andre no one knew who, really where he was training, even though he was a champion at the time, um, and uh, by getting that access, it got it scored in my my uh, my first job, so I started back in 2006, I believe, yeah, yeah, 2006 I think it was, oh no, that's wrong, actually that was 2005, and in 2006, um, I bought the website, me and a partner, uh, Mike Contreras, we bought the website, but yeah, I actually got my first job in 2005.
1: I've always been curious, how do you get into MMA writing? I did it a little bit in the early days to like early 2000s, but it was like a friend's website. So it was more of doing a favor. But how do you do it professionally? You just kind of send a writing sample, you do a pitch.
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. There's probably a lot, like everyone probably has their own stories, right? And, and different paths to it. And at the time I was in college, I always considered myself a writer, but I wasn't doing any writing other than class assignments, so I was kind of, I was bummed about that. I said I got to do something, and I was wondering the same thing. I'm like, how do I go about getting something published anywhere online? You know, um, you know, newspaper, magazine, you know, whatever. And, and I was spending so I spent so much time just reading about the fights, following the fights I um, had since I was a, a little kid. And I, I thought, well, I'm already spending a ton of time researching there and, and reading everything. And maybe that'll be the most efficient use of my time. So let's try to start figuring out, I, you know, people really accessible, at least um, online, most websites at the time, had like an editor's email address, you can write them. And, and so small, it was an even smaller, more niche uh, world back then, as you, you probably know. And I got some responses, people were nice, they weren't like paid jobs per se uh, at at the time that I was finding, but uh I was getting responses saying, hey, why don't you do this? You know, why don't you do that? or let's talk. And so that was kind of nice. And then I had, my favorite site at the time was inside fighting. They just had they were doing these long form um these long form narratives where they would go into the gym and do these real good feature profiles, including like an American Kickboxing Academy, which is just starting to burge at the time. Like really good actual quality writing, you had guys like Tom Gervaisi, who um, the year I joined, some months later, actually joined and became the editorial director at at, uh, at the UFC, He's still there now, other people like Jason Probes, who covered government in addition to doing this, just a ton of really good people, TJ DeSantis, who still does broadcasting at a high level now, bunch of really good people, and it was my favorite site to read, and I noticed that the editor there always responded to my letters to the editor, just when I would write in something, right, like they had this mailbag feature every week, and occasionally they would publish uh, something that uh, that they had written, the editor at the time, uh, Michael uh, DeSanto, and he would always respond to my emails. So I said, well, this guy at least reads his emails, right? It's a start because you don't want to get your pitches you know, thrown in, in the garbage and never, never uh, read. So before I wrote a story, I told them that they should have one of their writers write a story on my then coach, uh, Dino Costeas, because I thought he deserved some credit. He was coaching Andre Arlovsky basically – one-on-one at a time when Andre was rising to the ranks and ultimately Hutsumi became uh, become the UFC champion and no one knew about him. Um, and uh, I, I said, you know, I, you should do that. Here's his info. And also I offered at the time, I said, you know what I can do since no one really knows who this Dino Costellas guy is at a national level. I can uh, I've been I've trained with them since I was 15. I can write you a little bit of I could do like a I didn't know what it was called <laughs> but it was a pre-interview which is done. <laughs> but I just said I can talk to them and I can write up like a one pager with some biographical information. Just so you guys have some some basis to go in and, and form some questions for an interview. Apparently that was the thing. I didn't realize that it. it's just was an idea I had at the time and I, I did that for him. And then a few months later, I wrote them saying, okay, you know, Andre Olavsky's coming up, he's got a fight coming up soon, Um, you know, I don't know if you remember me, uh, blah, 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 he did a story on on my coach and Andre's coach, Um, you know, how about I write a story on Andre Olavsky, I knew they had no one in Chicago, this website, I knew no one was doing stories on Andre Olavsky, so I thought it was a safe bet that no one would just steal my idea, then come over to the gym. So they figured they had nothing to lose, I guess, because if it was a bad story, they just dump it, right? So they said, yeah, go ahead. You could do the story. And we did what, what they call at the time, these training day things, which at the time were kind of novel. You would do a long form, a feature profile you're spending time with someone at the gym. You'd also take video footage of training, and then they would edit it and have a video and a text multimedia package. So I did that. And that became one of the most popular stories I'd ever done. I think it was third behind uh an exclusive they did with chuck liddell and one they did on mike tyson and it's just again because no one you know everyone was really interested in Andre lasky and he was also at mysterious because no one was really writing about him so that did well then they offered me kind of like a a trial six week period where i would write one story a week they would provide all of the contacts as i had none outside of my own team uh and uh they would provide me training and this and that basically work for free for six weeks if that went well, they said they'd give me a job. Uh, it went well, and uh, they offered really, really good support. I was su- super lucky. Michael Desanto, uh, re- you know, he he wasn't lying when he said he was going to open up his rolodex for me. I remember, I think it was probably like my third or fourth week. Uh, he said, "Okay, Elias, uh, here's your assignment for this coming week." Uh, and it was on, it was uh, Randy Couture was about to retire for the first time, so I want you to interview Randy Couture. Instead of taking that interview for himself, the retirement interview, he gave it to his 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 rookie writer. Um, which is about the most nervous I'd ever was and, and still ever probably have been for an initial interview over the phone. And he just hooked me up and um, did that interview. So they provided me a ton of support, really taught me how to, how to write. And, um, yeah, I got really lucky. You know, I put some effort forth, you know, with years of research and training. And then I said, okay, let me just start bothering people, see if, uh, see if I can figure out how to write this stuff. I thought I could. I just didn't have the training. And I got lucky um, when my favorite site gave me a chance, basically.
0: So Elias, I know you talk about inside fighting and what a blast from the past, because when you mentioned the long form writing, one of my favorites was actually done on Phil Baroni, where they trailed him and then he had that video where he talks about being a rock star, but he's broke, and he was essentially living out of <laughs> his car. Classic. I don't know if that was you who wrote it, it but it I love that I article. Know exactly
2: what you're talking about. That was an amazing piece and a great, hilarious video package. That was DeSanto, Actually, my editor at the time did that. He was he was close with Phil Baroni at the time, and that was him. He was also a great writer. Yep.
0: yeah. Because, like you mentioned, Inside Fighting was one of the first sites that actually covered it from beginning to end. And before, I didn't really know anything about Phil Baroni other than he's quote unquote the best ever. <laughs> <laughs> the best ever and he's the fucking man and other than his fights with Linland and the one where he starched uh was it dave minet and then he beat andre Sulawev in a comeback fight i was like i don't know much about this guy but watching and reading about how he trains like all right i want to root for him and even when he went into that slump and he got subbed by pete sell i still want to root for him and then he went over to pride bushido did well but Anyways, inside fighting was a great site.
2: No, it wasn't. It was my favorite. I feel like I'm not I'm not bragging because it was my favorite before I before I worked there before I took over. And yeah, that's it's awesome. And I'm, I love I love hearing people who also were, were fans of it like me. But yeah, isn't it amazing? What like what a great what a great uh, feature profile can do for someone's interest in in the sport in any sport in in a personality or in any subject matter. I suppose right. Like it's it's that stuff where that that makes us. I feel start caring about a topic or a person regardless of wins or losses like you said you're like yeah I didn't care after I read that I didn't care if you know if he he lost whatever I was still interested in him and I and I think that that was one of the more early formative experiences I had my dad when I was a kid got me a subscription to Sports Illustrated back when they were still uh you know running pretty high acting and had really good writing and and I would read I always watch sports but I would read these you know, little longer magazine pieces, and they were talking about the person's life, and they were, you know, relaxed. It wasn't a quick vignette. And that that really I think that's what if I think about, it, that's what got me interested in in writing to begin with, is because it felt like a really cool way to get to get access to worlds
1: uh, and, and people that were interesting to fans. So in the early days, it was almost impossible to make money off of MMA writing. Even I remember that it was like uh, you know if they could get me a pass to see a UFC for free right, that was cool. Right, right. But is it possible now to make a living as an MMA writer, or is still difficult and you still have to you know do other things?
2: I, I think being a writer, generally speaking, as far as I can tell, has ebbs and flows. Right. You know, I think I've been really, really, really fortunate um, covering local politics and government in, in Chicago and covering international combat sports. To have probably lucked out more than. 99% of writers ever will in terms of like ever getting paid and getting you know being able to I haven't starved to death right I started in 2005 it's 2018 I haven't starved so I think I'm doing better than most writers so I, I, I'm very very lucky but within that it's been huge ebbs and flows right like there's been times where I've had seven dollars in and in literally seven dollars in my bank. Where I was, <laughs> and I was riding full time. Uh, and then other times where I was getting paid amounts that were kind of like embarrassing because you know I'm not like saving lives or anything um, as a writer. So I, I think there's no doubt. There's way more opportunities to make any type of living and covering. uh Let's let's keep it with an MMA um, than, than there were before, right? Uh, at the same token, it's still difficult, right? There's still not a there's not a lot of jobs covering MMA full time making a salary with benefits. There's there's not a lot. There's just there's just not. I mean, I, if we if we took the time and I got a pen and paper out, I could probably add up the jobs that I that I know exist out there and it wouldn't be that many. So, it's better than it used to be. Back, you know, there was a time where the people who were doing it full time with the with the best quality work and the you know, the most access and doing the most writing they couldn't make a living off of it. Now there at least exist opportunities to make a living off of it. And then and then, you know, then it becomes like, okay, welcome to welcome to journalism at this point where you have a choice. You can come a you become a courtier and, you know, basically just try to make powers that be happy. And then you could you know, give yourself a better chance uh, oftentimes of, of continuing to make money or you could be mission oriented and then you'll, you know, you'll struggle. Or, you know, I mean, it's a tough thing, but it's definitely better than it used to be back then. I knew the, some of the best writers in the world. Um, Tom Tom Gervais, was was um, was was writing and editing and max boxing at the same time as he was at inside fighting and then at the UFC and up until he got the UFC gig. I think he's talked about this publicly, so I'm not like spoiling anything. But he was a he was a he was a janitor full time. Now listen, it was a good job. He was a union janitor. You know, I mean, like he got paid a salary. He was raising a family. It's not, but it was hard work. And the point being, he had to do another job on top of covering, um, on top of covering the sports, right? And he was the best. And I still think he, writing pound for pound, I think Tom Gervais is the best writer. He doesn't do journalism per se because he's you know he's working for the ufc but as a writer in terms of the quality and the quality he puts out he's he's the freaking best and he like he was basically within that niche community of boxing and mma like the the most well-known person out there and he you know no one knew that he was also having to work a full-time job so you know it, it's it's possible now there's not many jobs and sometimes the best jobs in the world evaporate yahoo sports at one point had a huge amount of money on their staff and um then cut it down, and then they had a lesser amount, and I was an editor there, and, uh, and then they cut back there again, and then we were at Fox Sports, and they spent a ton of money, and then they just, FoxSports.com and the whole decided they were going to have no writing at all, even though, you know, they're just wrecking in traffic, so it's very volatile, it's not secure, um, but at least <laughs> there are a couple jobs where you can make money, it's not easy, but there's a couple jobs out there.
1: You mentioned earlier now you're covering politics and other news so from mma journalism sounds like you segued into real journalism
2: i find it all connected you know like i think i think sports um yeah my first jobs were covering the fights and i still cover the fights now but yeah you know i moved on to do other things as well I worked for some uh, papers and magazines here in chicago um general interest papers we covered everything and I always enjoyed covering politics and government, or public policy generally, or public affairs, depending on how general or specific you want to get. Right, I always enjoyed that. Um, but I always felt, and you know, I, I studied political science as an undergrad. I, you know, we all I grew up, um, you know, watching the Sunday morning shows, discussing things, reading. I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't a stretch for me by any case by any stretch of the imagination. But I've always viewed I've always viewed like sports journalism as a, as a phenomenal way to get at deeper societal issues for for all people, people who may think that, oh, they don't quote unquote like politics, or they don't quote unquote want to discuss politics. But they don't realize that you know politics is is, is everything, right? The, the the heights of my ceiling in my in my home right now are, are probably you know regulated by city code, which is a political process in addition to an engineering thing. You know the, uh, um, the, the their favorite athletes and how much they get paid and the flexibility they have to go to this team or that team or you know the ways that they can uh, bargain collectively or as individual contractors. All of that is is politics, and it's all connected to the more the more fun things that we think about oh look at this guy's house look at that look at that athlete's you know car okay, okay well how did they get there how did they get to that point of wealth baseball players weren't always paid this amount football players weren't always paid this amount what are the machinations and the history the particular history that that led that uh to be or you know in a kind of the more prehistoric stage that we're still at with with MMA how do I see people fighting uh, on national television or now soon to be ESPN and, and, and pay-per-view um, yet they you know up until recently the heavyweight champion of the world had to work as a fire, fireman um, you know he says he loves the work and I know Sipri Miochik does but also happens to be the only job that he has that has a pension, that has health insurance, you know, and he has a family. So how does that work, you know? How how you know how, how does that happen? Where MMA uh, that grew from this thing that all of us here it sounds like for a long time been watching and loving, and including when it was effectively banned. How is it that these these folks now are all over? They're they're they have corporate, um, you know, Forbes five hundred, Forbes one hundred companies on their shorts, on the ring, uh, and yet they still have to work, you know, side jobs. I think, you know, politics, you know, or you could talk about, you know, labor issues throughout the years. You can talk about race in society through the prism of, of sports. You can talk about, you know, um, labor rights. You can talk about uh, gender politics. You can talk about just about anything through the prism of sports. So it's a really good opportunity to get people to care about larger political issues because they care about sports. So I've always, I've always thought that they were connected. And just as much as M- MMA... journalism has has its issues as as a loosely as a loose institution (laughs) but you know journalism of all sorts always has and 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 always does as well so it's tough man there's real journalism and i think you can do real journalism regardless of what you're covering and i think you could do poor journalism regardless of what you're covering too but yeah i always it was easy for me to transition one to the other um i i studied politics um uh, i've always enjoyed that and i always saw sports is not disconnected from that so yeah as other opportunities came about i I took them and and sometimes it took me a little away from fighting and sometimes it brought me back um but yeah it's it's i
0: I see them as connected you've mentioned several things that i want to somewhat briefly touch on if possible so especially journalism When you mentioned that Yahoo Sports would hire a bunch of people and then cut them, Fox Sports would hire a bunch of people and cut them, that seems to be a trend amongst all institutions of reporting. So the fourth and fifth estate are taking this turn where they'd rather have contributors. I know Vox Media and SB Nation will seek out independent contractors to write articles for them and just pay them off one at a time because... It saves them costs on benefits and full-time salaries. So it seems to be a problem all the way around, not just limited to MMA journalism. And when you mention sports and politics and how all these institutions are combined, I can't help but think of the documentary Icarus. I'm not sure if you're able to watch it or if you're familiar with it. So when the Russian team was able to score so many gold medals at Scochi or Sochi Olympics and then Putin used that, increase political approval level to say, okay, we're gonna annex Crimea now. Like, huh? And no one questioned it. They said, yeah, I sure, why not? So I think I've always used that as the standard, unfortunately, of how politics and sports are intertwined and how favor in one can lead to movement in the other.
2: I think that's a really good analogy. I think it's it's astute observation. I mean I can't say it much better. And 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 I certainly I certainly agree. I, I think that's I mean, <laughs> this is, I, mean, I don't know, I don't know how coherent or how uh, much of a zoom out this or how wanted this this zoom out is uh, or not by you guys. But I mean, I really, you know, I listen to this and the stuff we're starting to talk about. I mean, this is a matter of like seeing the things that connect us, whatever industry we think we're in, whatever, you know, job we think we do. I mean, there's so much that connects us. I think MMA journalists or journalists generally. Can certainly see the connection between themselves and the people they cover. A lot of times, depending on their beat, but MMA journalists, fight journalists, and fighters, um, they're very much in the same boat. Like you mentioned, it goes beyond the sport. But in terms of this being an independent contract, this geek, this geek economy, this, this stage of. Of uh, global or corporate capitalism, or whatever you know, whatever we want to call it, casino capitalism, the stage we're in is is resulting in everything being gigafied, and it's cute sounding, right? It's cute to talk about the gig economy and the flexibility and all this stuff, and you see these, <laughs> these depressing posters of, uh, of billboards of people renting out their car to others to you is not just driving them around or renting out their home because they can't afford their to maintain their home without letting others strangers live in it or they can't afford to, to pay their car note without letting strangers drive it anymore this is this is where we're at and I think it's happening everywhere you're right it's absolutely happening everywhere and all these things are interconnected They're interconnected through class and I think um, we like to see a lot of differences between one another, um, but but even millionaire uh, athletes are, are, are connected to, you know, working not-millionaire people more so than, than, you know, the billionaires are connected to, to either one of them, and yeah, it's crazy. They the This independent contractor issue is really, really far-reaching, um, it, and, and sometimes they blind it with money, right? So the best-paid UFC fighters... They're 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 rich. They have they have a lot of money. They make millions of dollars. That's fine. Um, they don't have a pension. They don't they don't have a they don't have a seat at the table when deals with the different corporate sponsors that they are compelled to wear on their shorts or to fight on. Uh, they're compelled to fight on in, in their mats. They don't have a, a seat at the table nor does their representation when those deals are and negotiated so they miss out on that there's no auditing process of what comes in even with deals where they're supposed to have some type of royalty like video games or toys you talk to a lot of fighters they've never gotten a check from video games and they're in the video games they've never gotten a check from the action figures and they have action figures made out of them cuz you know it's it's a very insecure place to be they can be fired pretty much uh, at will but on their end they they're 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 being given they have to give exclusivity that's something that the the some of the luckiest mma or combat sport writers can, can relate with uh, i was paid well at yahoo sports and i was paid well at fox sports um but i was an independent contractor even though there was like insurance available to me i mean i was at will i wasn't a part of a guild i wasn't a part of a union um i didn't have a, a, a pension even that they were really even um you know that they were providing and um I left, but people that stayed behind some of my colleagues they ended up just getting summarily dumped and their performance was not the issue at all and they were producing you know huge numbers and they they had you know no no recourse you know they were told if what their severance would be if, if, if anything and and uh, yeah it's it's there's, there's no real there's no real uh, there's no real security and I think it also can affect the quality of journalism. I mean I mean we're all probably young enough where we kind of all miss this boat period. But it's astounding to me, you know, like real publications should have a fact-checking department. That works in every story there should be multiple editors from line editors to copy editors to overall like yeah, all the way up to editorial directors editor-in-chief there should be multiple layers of of uh, of editors that ensure like a really thoughtful probing editorial process to d- d- divide up by beat and subbeat so if you're, you know and we should be robust reporting staffs and and columnist staffs as well so not, not only you don't just have a an mma team you have you know the team that does the analysis the technique let's keep it in the mma world they, they talk about the technical components of it you have people that talk about the business of mma you have science reporters who are covering this uh you know this this business as well you know god knows you we could use that right now when we have an accountant like jeff Novitsky putting out all sorts of nonsense out there and people just have to kind of accept it at face value because we don't have any science reporters um at these outlets um you should have regul- people that are specifically covering, covering state houses and, and uh, athletic commissions doing the regulation side of MMA. That doesn't happen. And not only that, but most writers, not only do we have to, you know, it's nice to have flexibility. We have to, you know, cultivate the stories from start to end uh, along with our sources. But We pretty much self-edit a lot of the times and self-publish. And that's fine. Like I'm, have been, an, I've been a writer. I've been a reporter. I've been an editor. I've been a publisher. I've been a hell a, a lot of hats. And I am a decent, a decent line editor, a decent copy editor. Um, but you know, everyone should have, uh, should have, you know, different levels placed in front of them, and other eyes on their work. As a result, you get a lot of things going out there without any type of real editorial process. It's rushed, um, and it's really, really susceptible to just taking whatever you're fed. From in this case, fight promotions because you have deadlines to meet. You don't have a lot of standards for taking time with stories and care with stories. So it's very easy to quote Dana White and present it in a headline, even if he's lying. And, and that's that's most most people read. And that's not just happening here. That's happening. You know, I read the laziest headlines like like all of us do every single day from from the White Ho- the the White House um, the the people that cover the White House, the White House beat. It's insane. Though the the President of the United States will. Will will say a lie, and because they want to keep up with this 24-hour news cycle, and 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 there's cost cutting, and they just want to they want to get um, traffic, and they don't they don't have like a bunch of a uh, bunch of level they have reduced levels of, of editorial oversight as well. At this point, they'll just quote the president's lie and put it up there and let it stand on its own without any type of analysis. It's it's really a shame. It rushes things. It, it makes us more um, inappropriately independent uh, dependent on the people we cover as opposed to independent from them which is which is a really important line to have um, and it's it's not good for for us that work in there it doesn't it doesn't really provide well for for our security it's kind of like boom and bust oh man I'm making a lot of money now that's cool I'm getting a lot of exposure oh now I'm not and you know and I have nothing to, to fall back on so I think it's I think it's really detil- utilitarian. I think it's um it's affecting just about every sector that we see out there. You know, full time um, work for people that is, pays a living wage is disappearing in just about every sector, in every industry. Uh, you know, and and some industries altogether are, are disappearing. And I think they're all connected. I think they're part of the. I think they're part of the same thing. Uh, I think they're all part of the same. Um, the same approach you know, that the the global economy is, is taking.
1: Putting aside your journalist hat for a second, you mentioned a lot of things. So where do you think this is headed? Because do you know the philosopher Slavoj Zizek? Yep. So there's a quote, it's a paraphrase. He didn't exactly put it this way, but basically the paraphrase goes, it's easier for us to imagine the end of civilization than the end of capitalism. Right, right. And and you see that in movies where they're like I don't know Avengers or or Terminator it's like well industry and profits always going to go up and we always need to replace humans and build more stuff and use more resources so I guess there's no way to stop it and it's like yeah, <laughs> we could have some kind of different economy but but it doesn't but that idea doesn't even occur to the writers that that's even possible right you know you get it so I could just explain it to you in a couple sentences when I talk to somebody who's never thought about it it takes me like thirty minutes to try to just explain this idea you know there's like Another way we can run society.
2: No, I think I think I think that's right. That's profound. Yeah, I, Zizek is 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 pretty good too. Like, yeah, um, he's he's a he's a crazy dude, but he's he's my type of crazy. He's an interesting guy. Um, I think he's right. I think he's right. I think, um, you know. Furthermore, I perhaps. People don't understand how when they when they can conceive of the end of the world, and I think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance about that. I think people don't. I think we have some trouble <laughs> as civilization coming to terms with the fact that we are that, that we that we could that the world end of the world could happen in any way other than some you know um, you know uh, Armageddon porn in the form of some like you know earthquake movie or volcano movie. I think we actually. Don't see it for what it is. Uh, we only can think of terms of cataclysm and drama. We don't see like, no, the Earth will 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 hobble on, but the end of a civilization as we know it can happen. The end of our species as we know it can happen. Uh, the end of at least structured civilization or organized um, uh, civilization. I think I'm paraphrasing Noam Chomsky there. That can happen. We don't see. We don't like to look at the details or the or the nuances when they're when they're when they're not dramatic, and we don't see how. The type of, like you said, the type of capitalism or the thing we call capitalism now, which I, I don't, I don't think it's real capitalism, um, is intrinsically tied to the actual ways in which we will uh, potentially destroy ourselves. Um, and I think there's a lot of work that goes into that. that that's like you said, it take you take you long If you can explain that to someone and get them understand it in thirty minutes, you've you've done a great job but I think it's it's hard. <laughs> and I think I think you know self reflection. And deconstruction is is concertedly um, dampened and 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 and, and um, discouraged with with our education systems, uh, formal and informal, with with the discursive in the media, what what is allowed to be discussed, what is not allowed to be discussed. It's um, it's insane, you know. When was the last time when I shouldn't say things so glibly like insane, but it's 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 astounding to me, you know. When was the last time you heard Žižek or Not that and Noam Chomsky are the same. They disagree in a lot. But let's take them. When's the last time you heard them on the super liberal leftist NPR? You haven't and you won't. You won't. They're barred.
1: Forget about them. What about Ralph Nader?
2: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly.
1: They'll never let him on anything. No, that's right. Ralph Nader,
2: who's probably done more than any other American for Americans in, in the 20th and 21st century. I mean, not only did he fight for and, and specifically uh, um, write all of the um, the most important legislation that's probably saved millions upon millions of lives from from the food industry, the car industry. I mean, he's just he's just as close to a real life superhero as what well can get. He he's avoided any type of of. Uh, of financial corruption i mean it's just so rare and and he he doesn't even get a seat uh, at any table we're not allowed to discuss things that the thing like i think you're right the thing that we're not we're allowed to discuss a lot and there's a lot of rancor and there's a lot of arguing on these political shows or on the news and stuff what you can't as far as i can tell what you definitely can't ever discuss is criticism of the system as it stands and we can call that globalism again i think it's a real weird deviation from from adam smith that i read uh um and I'm a I'm a I'm a merchant capitalist. I have a jiu jitsu school, I have an MMA school, like I've I've owned businesses. I have no problem with like working on something and providing services and getting paid for it. That's 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 definitely not um you know, I don't think I think there's worse things in the world. But that's a far cry from what we're doing now, which is where we have basically State capitalism, the same as Russia ever did or China ever really has or currently has where there's, you know, there's a huge redistribution of wealth from from the working class and the poor to the rich uh, the, the, the destruction of any type of real, uh, markets, I think, I don't think free markets are the worst things in the world. I just think that in, o, in an Orwellian sense, what we call free markets are, are completely, uh, captive, uh, or, or propped up markets, um, you know, run by cartels that influence and take the government captive. So yeah, I think it's, it's kind of, it's insane to think you'll, you can talk with people, um, again, I keep saying that it's, you can talk with folks on issue after issue, uh, uh and what they would like to see, you know, whether it's health healthcare or or democratic rights by some other name in the workplace like who wouldn't who who doesn't wish that they had more say in what happens at their workplace right like who doesn't think somebody above them is making really dumb decisions and they'd be better off if they had a stake in you know or not a stake but a say in what was going on because they certainly have a stake in it everyone agrees with all these types of issues but the second you call it uh, socialism or, you know, any communism or anything else, um, from a strictly academic sense, you, you come up against the wall. And I think a lot of work has been put to make sure that happens. We, you know, we, we were really, you know, a lot of work was was put into us unthinkingly supporting Joe Stalin, who was a horrible human being, of course, when he was our ally in World War II and they were they were winning, the, uh, winning the World War Four. For the allies, largely, um, uh, you know, we were just I'm thinking like Uncle Sam and Uncle Joe were hand in hand, and all the propaganda. Then immediately afterwards, they had a they had a big ideological project. Uh, the, you know, the American government, the military industrial complex, and it was very important for them uh, to suddenly get a bunch of people to think uh, that that Russians and everything associated with Russia uh, was bad. And because Russia insisted they were Marxian, which I don't think they were. The government, I don't think the <laughs> I don't think the Communist Party of Russia was. Was Marxist or Marxian in any in any honest way? Any more than our government is democratic in any honest way? They just like to take on these uh, these these titles because they're appealing uh, to certain people. Because of that, we just we just had an aversion to anything. So like like uh, um, Richard Wolff, a uh, great economist, talks about is uh, and I'm paraphrasing very very loosely here, but it's like anything. Um, you know anything that you know is critical of this of any system we have is important. Whether you agree with it or you don't agree with it. Right now we have this global core, uh, capitalism. The most important critique of that uh, is speaking very collectively and very broadly um, um, is 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 Marxism. How do you not even how how is you, how do you never look at the critique of the system you have. If you end up agreeing with it or disagreeing with it, you should study it. And you know, he he talked about how it his entire education, all the way up through his PhD in economics. No one ever had him required him to read Marx, uh, which is just ludicrous. And it, that that's not just popular journalism. That's not just elementary school. That's the the best, supposedly the best educational institutions at the highest level. Uh, just banning certain types of thought and certain types of criticism. So yeah, it's I think that's that's what we get. Um is we get people just unable to fathom uh, any type of other possibility, any other type of li- way of living. And it's astounding because capitalism is, as as we call it, as we run it is incredibly unstable. It collapses like every half decade to decade and yet, we don't even think that maybe there's something else. We don't even think that maybe there's something else we could do. We only think about the atrocities committed by so-called communist countries, who I argue aren't communists, um, like Russia or China. We don't even think about the millions that we're still enslaving with our so-called capitalist system, which I don't think is really capitalist. Just, we, it just never even occurs to us, right? It's, 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 just, it's incredible and it's really sad.
0: It's funny when you mention Richard Wolf, because in the context of fighting, I would love to see a matchup between Richard Wolf and Jordan Peterson, but the Peterson <laughs> camp is not going to allow that. They're like, oh, no, that's a bad style matchup for us. We're going to lose that one. We need to avoid that fight at all costs. It's like that Clubber Lang and Rocky Balboa where Mick is like, you can't fight him. You're going to lose. You're, not, you're too coddled. You haven't fought any real challengers. You do well against these other college professors who have no idea what you're talking about. But against somebody who knows their shit yeah. and will call you out on it and ask for examples, you're gonna <laughs> be more or less left defenseless. And it's similar to whenever he talks to Sam Harris about religion. Is like this won't end well. But then Sam Harris kind of massages that in. And it was like, well, I don't think you're right. As opposed to let's say a Christopher Hitchens or a Dawkins, who would have just shredded him. Was like, no, you're wrong. Here's why. And you talked about several things. One of the off things I want to mention is anytime somebody says Noam Chomsky. When I was active on the Sherdog forums, somebody quoted Noam Chomsky and I swear to God, one of the guys said, I couldn't find Noam Chomsky on the fight fighter, uh, on the Sherdog fight finder. Is he any good? And I was like, no fucking way. (laughs) So I had that as my signature for a long time. It was like straw dog 37 or somebody. It was like, (laughs) no way. And I think um, more or less, if in the context of fighting the ufc is proof that supply side economics doesn't work
2: (laughs) yeah no right right i think i think a lot (laughs) because there's there's abundant evidence that supply side economics doesn't work the way that we're told it's supposed to work um yeah no it's a matter of faith right like it's (laughs) it's 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 a matter of uh, orthodox faith uh, faith as much as as any religion and i'm not i'm not doubting people with religious faith or mystical faith I, i actually myself believe in all sorts of things that are non-rational and that, but I'm okay. I But I'm, but I'm okay with saying it's a matter of faith. I don't try to, I don't try to tell people, no, I can prove it. Or, I'm um, you know, anything like that. It, the, the Rocky analogy works up until the point where he, he wouldn't have a chance to be clever laying like Rocky did. It would just be, it's not even the same sport. I mean, it's like T-ball versus, I don't know, baseball it would be absurd.
1: <laughs> well, you know, we've all been on the message boards since sounds like for a while. Yeah. So, If we, you know, if you've been on the underground and Sherdog from the early days to now, we kind of saw, you know, politics changing before mainstream did. I feel like through MMA, we saw this kind of new right wing conservatism, Mm. which wasn't like your grandpa's conservatism with country Western music and that cursing. It was this kind of limp biscuit (laughs) sleeve tattoo, you know, kind of more alt light or, you know, kind of gonzo weirdo right-wing kind of coming through and it was you know instead of people knowing who noam chomsky was they were getting more enamored with these kind of pseudo right-wing obscure intellectuals maybe through youtube or whatever so it was weird to watch you know something that was so collective and you know basically the internet people were keeping mma alive and Mm. like you said with the profiles there was this sense of community and intimacy even with the fans and the fighters and then we saw it change over time into this like very extreme individualism kind of everybody was becoming like a lone wolf archetype.
2: That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's really perceptive. I, I, I had been thinking a lot about the analogies or the, I don't know, maybe that's not the right word, but the, the, you know, the, the, side, the side-by-side development of, um or the change in politics and, and, and driven by unlike culture that we saw in, and fighting you're right and then and and apparent from what i read and and, and some of the porting i read or listen to about uh, uh about some of um the the so-called alt-right these neo uh white supremacists that's really driven by online culture as well and the anonymity that uh, that some people need in order to to take on these identities which ultimately become actionable to organize online yeah i had thought about that i hadn't thought about the the move which i think you're right i'm from like this community sense to individualism and yeah even maybe a weaponized lone wolf situation um i think that's really that's really interesting i think i think that's right i think that's right i mean i i i I, I never i never went on Sherdog uh the forums that much i have an account there i think i think i had like one or two arguments but i was definitely on the underground for a lot and yeah i mean you remember how it was like you you would have you know, there was a sense that people would argue, and there's people maybe liked you or didn't like you, but it's felt like a community. People felt like they were bonded at least through this love for fighting, and and so much so that you know the biggest names in the sports and the fighters would come on there and talk. And now they've all been driven off because um, it's just like a really weird, mean culture, and it's and it's not, it's not even like subtly or hidden i mean it's just it's very racist and this breaks my heart right like the owner of it kirk janess is a friend of mine he's my boss there and i, and I think that's right i just think things become their own beast and and like so many other island communities i read about i think there's just this fomenting fermenting of of um of 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 individualism for, which i hadn't thought about but also this this really radical um violent um racist politics and it's yeah and we've seen that develop and you know and you, you guys follow this for forever been a part of this for forever i always i've been thinking about how you know th- there needs to be an article written up from people that not many of us have done it but covered the ufc for over a decade and and talk about the language and the treatment of of media members behind the scenes and out in the open of dana white and how that we really um what is very similar and, and pretty much identical to what donald trump ended up doing starting his campaign i mean there are all these types of similarities.
1: Remember Loretta Hunt? The shit Dana White was saying against Loretta Hunt back in the day.
2: Yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah, it's long forgotten, right? No one really, um, no one really, no one really talks about. How, how did that not get him fired? How did that not preclude him from at least years later when a big major company? Um, like Ari Emanuel t- takes over the UFC. How did that preclude them from from keeping someone like him on uh, on board? His his speech is not really changing all that much either. It's just and and, it, and it's and it stinks because like the mainstream used to be like man when when, when the UFC goes uh, and and MMA goes mainstream. If it goes mainstream, you know we're going to be respected and things are going to have to change the way we talk about things. Sadly, what became accepted in the mainstream is what what Dana White was doing all along. Uh, Breaking you know union busting. Uh, type of stuff, um, ma- making the you know calling the uh, the press the enemy of the people, just bald faced lies, um, denying that you said something that's on tape. That became mainstream. Instead of the mainstream end up affecting M- MMA positively, what Dana White was doing all along became you know the mainstream of what's happening at the highest level of politics, which. It's sad. I think we always assumed the mainstream would, would positively affect us, but just like just like we you know we often think progress is inevitable or justice is inevitable, um, it, it isn't, right? It has to be fought for. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, the moment Dana White spoke at the Republican National Convention, um, introducing Donald Trump about that, oh, fuck. So much for the UFC being apolitical.
2: And so many people in the UFC who don't agree with those politics, what did they do? They didn't quit. They didn't say, oh, well... I, I, you know my boss is supporting um the the uh the candidate of the kkk i i have to reevaluate my choice and, and not work for this company they didn't they stuck around and so then that becomes okay and that becomes acceptable the media didn't stop and think about it and ask about him. they're scared of dana white talking to them angrily or something i don't know raising his voice at them because he thinks he's a fighter and so they don't ask about it much um they, you know it, it's it's they don't stand up for one another they don't stand up for each other and this this propaganda film i don't know if you all saw this propaganda. i haven't seen it i've seen clips they made a propaganda film that they're putting out on like on their distribution on the bypass yeah Fight pass you know just it's a propaganda film for his his friend Donald Trump. It's um Yeah, and it's giving no one pause. No one. All these reporters think they're so liberal. They'll they'll talk about how liberal they are. I don't I'm not I don't I don't see much being written about this. All these people who probably work for, you know, in Nevada for him, you know, they're just normal people who probably don't like hate people because of the color of their skin or their or the income tax bracket and they don't reflect on it it's this is how things get done i think you know it's we've increased job you know everyone has 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 real strong fears and real strong um employment insecurity and that's a good good thing to keep people docile and i and keep people too scared to, to
0: speak up in a way dana tr- I was going to say Dana Trump, but Dana White...
2: <laughs> we should do that. We should we should coin that and then just talk about the similarities as, as if they're one person.
0: If you think about it, he serves as the prototype for Donald Trump. He was the first president, very brash, talk shit about reporters. He blocked Ariel Hawani and Luke Thomas and a lot of these people. Well, he
1: tried to get people fired too.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah. and then he not only does all this, he makes promises, never follows through. No one calls him out on it because they don't want to be disinvited. He rules with an iron fist. He's not afraid to go and talk shit about other promoters. And he says, they don't know what the fuck they're doing. I'm the only one who can do it. And I think even when Ari Emanuel and WME bought them out, they said, well, who are we going to get to replace Dana White? There's a very, very short list of people that fit that bill. So unfortunately, they might have been stuck with what they had. And it says, well, unless we could figure it out this will kind of have to do.
2: I think, I, I think you're right about that. I, what's interesting to me, though, is because I was kind of feeling that way, too. Um, like him or, or not, he has unique set of uh, experiences, uh, and and there there have been big periods where Dana White is more hands-on for better or for worse than people realize. The, the strange thing is he, his power is, from all indicators, is really lessened a lot, too. So I, I wonder, you know, like, why did they keep in mind if they were going to take away so much of his his power uh, to ultimately matchmake, to to you know, to all the sorts of things um, that he really doesn't have the power to do anymore? He doesn't even have power to keep his good friends like Chuck Liddell on a relatively modest, you know, um, you know, salary. He really doesn't have that much power anymore. Uh, and so many things long ago, even before this buyout. Were taken out of like so many things were taken out of his hands. Like negotiations with some of the, the sports' biggest stars, like John Jones, was taken out of his hands. People were, were were dealing with Lorenzo Fertitta because they couldn't stand to deal with Dana White. So it's very interesting to me that they kept him on because I was, I was assuming it was for the reasons you were saying, but yet they've stripped him of so much of the power. And so now I wonder if part of it is that he has such celebrity and popularity. And as a personality, he himself is a draw of sorts. And that's some of the reason to keep him on. Not even so much the, the Mac his his management. Because so much of the management has been taken out of his hands. But, you know, it's just it's just speculation on my part. I don't know.
0: I think you're right. And the other big reason I could think of is, hey, we need a scapegoat that's popular. Mm. Because if something falls through, we want a guy that could point to. It's like, I can't believe Dana White did so-and-so. Yeah. I can't believe he allowed blah, blah, blah. We saw this with the whole John Jones tobacco where... When they move the entire card, it's not Dana White saying, "Okay, why don't we just move it to California?" There's got to be tons of people behind the scenes that says, "Okay, this is the best course of action," and they don't want any blame. They don't want blood on their hands, so they figured, "Well, if anyone's going to take the fall, it's probably going to be Dana. He's well paid, so why not?" That's true.
2: That's true, right? And he and he'll he'll love it. He'll love like because he's he's so simple minded that he'll just he loves to to to, to to verbally try to intimidate people. He'll like gleefully take it on. It reminds you of like Michael Scott when he, well, I don't know if you guys watched The American Office, but there's a point in a later part of when when Steve Pearl was on there, there was a scandal brewing with the new owners uh, of 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 thunder mifflin and uh i don't know if this analogy is worth it so forgive me and say and he he welcomes he said can i he was a regional manager he's a manager and he said can i do the press conference i want to take the fall just because he wanted the attention he loved having the cameras on him and the, the microphones on him so the ceo of the this entire uh international company says yeah go for it and he's he just gleefully takes it on i think dana white is that he 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 doesn't have much to do he doesn't you know, he loves he loves to hate the things he he lo- he hates, and he'll like gladly go out there and and play his part of like, oh, I'm tough. I you know, I, I refuse to take this question or this person's an idiot um, as you know, and and so I think it's a familiar role. That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about that, but he is a really eager and familiar uh, uh, scapegoat.
1: This is all old ground that WWE has already done. They have those kind of popular wrestlers become the commissioner. And then if the real management does something, then they'll say that character, the commissioner, Mick Foley or whatever, <laughs> he did it. He, you know, Mick Foley fires CM Punk. And, you know, you don't realize that it was all people and lawyers behind the scenes. So I think that's pretty funny. Yeah, but, but it works. It, it deters uh, the fans from from turning against the whole company. And they'll just, you know, get angry at the commissioner or that character. And I think Dana White is playing that bill.
2: I like that. I think I think that makes a lot of sense. I feel like I feel like. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the first to say this, and others say it better. But I feel like that's a large part of what um, these the giant multinational corporations. I'm only and you know, I'm only an American. I only see this, but so I'm only using American companies and American government as an example. I'm sure it exists elsewhere, but I feel like that's largely the role that. Um, that uh, that the government, our our representatives, play on behalf of of uh, their true corporate bosses here in America. We get so angry at our politicians. Congress's approval rating is always really really low. Um, and you know their money comes from, and who really pays them uh, are, are these are these corporations that who you know and whose fates they they uh, they weigh in on a daily basis in the form of legislation or uh, bureaucratic decisions. And I think our anger of politicians is a good distraction so that we never turn our anger on the, on, on the, the multinational corporate bosses who are the bosses of <laughs> a large part of, of the government. You know we can we can have uh, really low opinions of Congress, but we idolize, um, you know Jeff Bezos, who has the genius to have learned how to make money uh, by having people work for him in veritable slavery. You know he's he's a genius, right? Like that's that's amazing. Uh, you know Steve Jobs is 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 amazing because he discovered that you, know, you can pay Chinese people less than than Americans. He's just amazing. We're gonna lionize him, but we're gonna always always really. You know, be mad at our at our politicians for putting in the type of cruel, unfeeling, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 inequitable policies that those same corporate bosses make them do. So it's kind of that type of distraction, I feel.
1: Yeah, I call it uh, corporate communism.
2: Yeah, no, that's right. I think that's
1: <laughs> it's just communism for the corporations. Yeah,
2: no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: I mean, it was what you were saying about state capitalism, but it's not the same idea. It just tends to be that people hate communism so much. When I attach that word to the corporations, people are like, wait a minute.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's good. I think it's an effective rhetorical tool. I may have to steal that.
1: Yeah, please. So let's uh, let's get into UFC 232. Yeah, man. Let's start with the main event. John Jones versus Alexander Gustafson with John Jones winning by TKO in round three i wish it
2: had happened four years ago um still you know great fighters um strange circumstance you know i I won't i object to everything about the fight from its location to john jones being able to fight to this belt that it was supposedly for uh, all that stuff but the fight itself between two martial arts, always going to be interesting. I think John Jones made some really interesting uh, adjustments. He decided to be a wrestler, which I think is a, a, a really smart move. Alexander Gustafson is a better, uh, more voluminous, more s- skilled, and just about every way striker than John Jones is. Uh, he happens to also be – a lot of people are better strikers than John Jones is, but they're not as long as him. They don't have um, his his timing. Uh Alexander Gustafson has great timing and is just as long as him about. So he gave him a lot of trouble with his superior striking skill in their first fight. John Jones from the get-go, I know he only really scored and kept that clean takedown in the third round, but he from the get-go John Jones put Alexander Gustafson on, on alert from the start of their fight that, that he was going to be a takedown threat. And Alexander Gustafson knew what a true what a true risk that was for him to be put on his back because he knew basically, probably, that if he was held on his back for any length of time, like he finally was in the third round, he wouldn't be able to last for very long with John Jones on top of him. And so that does a lot of things. Even with, even with Jones only really hit, hitting that takedown in the third, he was able to neutralize, I feel, a lot of Gustafson's offense earlier because of the takedown threat. Gustafson, there were, there were moments in the fight earlier in the fight where Gustafson would effectively walk down and feint at, at his way um, to the cage, corner John Jones completely with his footwork and feinting, and then... Try nothing, and then John Jones will be able to walk away. Why? Well, it's tough because you're like to, if you're gonna if you're gonna corner someone and then go offensive with your strikes, the distance is gonna close. And what's gonna happen in this particular matchup? You don't want the distance to close between you and John Jones because he's probably the best wrestler um, in, in, in MMA. He's gonna put you on your back. So John Jones' strategy, I think, of showing the takedown early and often, uh, really, really paid dividends. He showed he showed that you know what, uh, Alex, I'm I'm gonna basic, I'm gonna kick you at length, and then I'm gonna to try to wrestle you and that made him a completely different threat than he was in their first fight where he basically was like no let's let's kickbox a lot and let's see who gets the better of that Uh, and he's not going to score more than alexander gustafson if they just kickbox he might score with more power which is what happened in their first fight and then that'll make the difference but I, i thought that was a really smart adjustment I'm assuming he was conscious from him and, uh, and some of his coaches to say, let's go back to wrestling because what, make John jo- what makes John Jones a, a, a really effective fighter, at the end of the day, I feel, is his wrestling. Um, I don't think anyone has more efficacious wrestling um, in, in the sport. So, I, you know, they made really good adjustments. And, um, and he, he made Alexander Gustafson freeze up in moments where he should have been offensive, um, and, and understandably so.
0: So another adjustment that I really like from the John Jones camp was the first fight around when Alexander Gustafsson kept moving towards one side and then pivoting quickly to the other. It never made Jones comfortable and he always had to turn so he had a harder time launching kicks and stifling Alexander Gustafsson's movements. This time around it looks like the Jones camp did a good job of making sure that they were always on the outside being able to kick Gustafsson, limiting his mobility. And Gustafson admitted that right from the get-go that he had limited mobility. He couldn't get in that boxing range where he found success before. And with the variety of kicks that they kept feeding Gustafson, it was harder for him to do that low body jab that he found success with in the first fight. And not to mention, like you said, he always had to worry about the threat of the takedown. And I think it was also John Jones throwing it, not with the serious intention of taking it down, but here's, here's another thing to worry about. I'm going to do it again. All right, I'm going to strike. I'm going to go for it again. Oh, you blocked it. That's fine. So by the time the third round happened, Gordon Gustafson had to worry about his hurt shins and feet and keeping his hands high, but also kind of low in case he does go for a takedown. By the time he grabbed that low single to a takedown, I was like, all right, what was a done deal?
1: I think through John Jones, we really see the power of the Greg Jackson camp, how well they kind of scout their opponent and a game plan together because it definitely looked like jones had Gus better scouted than the other way around definitely looked like he had learned more from their previous fight than than Gus did i'm sure gustafson and his camp had a strategy but a lot of gustafson's boxing was just nullified no i think you're right
2: i mean it's it's that's interesting point too i think you know gustafson first of all he for five years or whatever it's been is probably just assuming I was robbed. So it's going to be tough to to really if you think you were robbed, you may subconsciously not put as much effort towards making adjustments as as one should. Furthermore, he's taken a lot more damage in this time since John Jones has. He is nowhere near the place in his career where he was back then. I think Alexander Gustafson is 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 an amazing fighter and he still is. But he shouldn't have been fighting for a world title at this point. He wasn't fighting for a real world title. I mean, he's like two and two in his last four fights. He's been knocked out uh, and hurt badly in recent years. I mean, it just takes its toll. Um, he's not this. I don't think he's as good as he was when when. As fr- I'll put it this way. I don't think he's as fresh. Good is not a is not a really nuanced enough charm. I don't think he's as fresh uh, in terms of his brain health and his reflexes as he as he was in their first fight. And I wouldn't be surprised if somehow subconsciously. Thinking that you know you were robbed by the first decision, kind of can manifest itself into not putting the same type of effort into into improving or making adjustments in this particular matchup as someone who likely feels embarrassed by uh, the the first fight in, in John Jones.
1: Yeah, it probably was more like John Jones was embarrassed, so he had to shut him down. Yeah, and Gus was kind of like, I won that fight, so everything I was doing worked. So I need to do more of that <laughs> yeah. and better of it. Right. Right. Paul and I were talking about Chris Weidman's future and we were like, well, if he moves up to 205 because the weight cuts so bad, how well would he do? And then we thought about it and we're like, he might do okay because light heavyweight is so weak. So to your point, why is Gus fighting for the title? Because light heavyweight is really weak. I think especially because Bellator exists and a lot of the old legacy fighters have had to retire and they're not as good anymore, like uh, Rashad Evans and so forth it just leaves the division open where it's just DC. If he's still staying around John Jones and Gustafson and you have everybody else rotating out. And even like Elir Latifi, you know, we were as fans, we were wondering, is he going to break into it? Is he going to be a contender? And you're like, okay, (laughs) maybe the division is a lot weaker than we thought.
2: I hate, I, you know, I don't mean any disrespect by it, but I understand where you're coming from. And, And I think more than anything, it's the UFC letting, I mean, when you let Phil Davis and Ryan Bader go, who are arguably like the number one contenders at the time, not to mention Mousasi, who can go up to that division and do well, like yeah, you're right it's 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 much weaker uh because they'd let the UFC has been letting top five top two, top three people just walk, so you're just cycling through the same people, you're right,
1: and then what I'm afraid is there's a guy, Dominic Reyes, who I think has yeah. a ton of upside, but because there isn't that many other good guys they're going to throw him to john jones like way too early or have him fight for a contendership fight way too early instead mm. of really building this guy up because of the lack of you know good guys in the division and you know their inability to groom prospects
2: mm. yeah no, you're right i can see that i can see that happening uh for sure yeah reyes is is uh is excellent he just beat osp you know that's a big win um that's definitely the the best person he's ever he's ever beaten. Yeah, it would see it's weird because on the one hand you want to reward him for being undefeated and doing well and all that, but on the other on the other hand you're like, yeah, do you want to just do you really want to just ruin uh, his 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 flow by by putting him in prematurely? Yeah, I, I think that's a real risk. And then you know, talk about it being weak. the The real light heavyweight champion is not even the light heavyweight champion anymore. Daniel Cormier. I know he was probably going to retire anyway, but I mean, that's just that's that's how weak it is in a sense and that uh daniel cormier the real champion is no longer uh in the division they let go the people that were probably next uh to challenge him at one point and ryan bader phil davis it's it's um pretty weird but it's probably what the ufc wants at this point they probably just want john jones to be there and and just reign supreme i i suppose he didn't you know joe rogan asked him if he wanted to move up to heavyweight and he's to me, he clearly said no. He wants Daniel Cormier to come down to light heavyweight, which is kind of absurd at this point. I mean, he, you know, I, I mean, I understand that John Jones wants to fight Daniel Cormier, you know, when Cormier is like fifty. But it's getting a little bit ridiculous at this point. He wants he wants Daniel Cormier to be like twelve years older than him, you know, and to and to dope, uh, uh, you know, insanely, and to be on his timetable. It's a little bit much.
0: It's the Mayweather model. <laughs> Wait until
1: they're old. (laughs) Wait until they're old and I'm
0: doping. It's like, I'm the A-side. You got to come to me.
1: But it explains why UFC is relying so much on super fights because you have two divisions that maybe only have five good fighters each side. So you're basically combining two divisions, right? Like UFC, women's 135 and 145 division, have them do a super fight. 125 and 135, have them do a super fight. Heavyweight and light heavyweight, have them do a super fight. People are like complaining that, you know, there's too many super fights. I don't even know if UFC wants super fights so much. It it might be more that the divisions themselves are so weak. The only way you could have competition is to do super fights like Valentina Shevchenko. Who's she going to fight now? 125, you know, I could see her doing a super fight, you know, well, she just did one with Joanna, but she might have to do it again.
2: Yeah, it's it's a weird byproduct. I mean, I guess it's a logical one, but it's a sad byproduct of of uh, that we see in other parts of the ufc's business they're just they're just trying to um reduce cost and and they closed up you know offices overseas um you know they're streamlining their production um uh capabilities as far as i can tell uh and and they're also just cutting a bunch of fighters and closing out entire divisions this is this was the new ownership's big i guess this is their really big idea or they realize that they absorbed way too much debt in a pretty bad deal for them and now they have to they have to um, cut costs but yeah we're seeing this all over i mean you know if the ufc hadn't uh shut down so many other avenues 125 would be incredibly uh you know rich uh valerie letourneau should be in the ufc and she should be fighting at at, in 125. shevchenko should be you know is there rosnav unis at some point i'd imagine could could go up to that there's a whole there's a whole world of people there's a whole world of people at 145. but yeah you know it's funny as i was it's not funny but i i i think it's pretty clear that they're using tj dillashaw they hope to to close down the, the men's flyweight division and at some point in my excitement uh the excitement of of Two great fighters, Amanda Nunes and and, and Cyborg Justino fighting. I, I forgot that it's entirely likely that they were trying to use Amanda Nunes to shut down the featherweight division, which they were so reluctant to open up to begin with as well. And now I think, you know, maybe that's going to happen as well. I wouldn't be surprised.
0: Yeah, this was Cyborg's last fight on her contract. and Is that right? I believe so. And because it took seven months to get this fight going, I don't think the UFC is in a rush to get that division going in. It's like the UFC is going through their own version of Javon's paradox, where they say, "Well, this is going to keep working, so let's just do it until it doesn't. We're going to run out." But let the wheels fall off.
2: Yeah, well, you don't have a lot of ideas. It's, I guess, it's an easy trap to fall into. That'd be interesting if it's their very last one. They learned. I thought that, I would think they would have learned from their their lesson of not letting people fight for a title in their last their last fight. Bruno Bustamante did that. Do you guys remember when he was the middleweight champ and then he left and then he went to uh, Pride? went to pride. Yeah. And he like kind of showed up with the UFC belt. And since then they've mostly tried not to let that happen, but I guess it could be, that's that, that would be unfortunate.
1: I think another reason why there isn't that much competition is what makes the division weak. Isn't that there isn't talent. There is talent and fighters are good. It's just that also for them to get to a title shot, they have to fight these five round main events on like, you know, non-pay-per-view. Right. So, now, you're not even fighting for the title and you're fighting five round fights. So, you're taking two extra rounds of damage. And then, by the time that you're fighting for the title, you're already damaged. So, all these young fighters, like look at Yair and uh, Korean Zombie. After that five round affair, you know, we haven't seen them again. And it might be a long time before we've seen them again. Look at Robert Whitaker and Yoel Romero. You know, it might be a long time before we see them again. I, I know Whitaker is fighting again, but that's a long time. Look at Alexander Gustafson. He fights five-round fights because he's been constantly fighting for the title and he's been fighting uh, main events. So he fights about once a year because after that five-round affair, he just gets so hurt that he can't fight again for another year. So I think that's another reason why uh, the division is weak because you damage the up-and-comers too much.
2: That's a really good point. Yeah, no, there's just talk about like what's not, what's not acceptable or no one thinks to, to discuss uh, and... and, and... In the mainstream, um, your question is: Is this whole oh you fight five rounds for the same price you'll fight three rounds? Uh, it's you know it's 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 really unfair. It's absurd, but it goes along with their intent to really underpay fighters to protect their margin, and also with this false narrative that no really really challenged. Um, and actually played into, I think, a lot of old school fans' um, eagerness to be accepted by mainstream sports because we're not as dangerous in terms of brain health as, as so many other sports. And as people uh, uh, thought, we'd let the lie that Dana White, among others, really uh, perpetrated for so long and still do in some ways. That this is the safest sport in the world. Well, no. Listen, football is more dangerous. I understand that, uh, <laughs> but fighting MMA is not the safest sport in the world. He's long acted like there's nothing to it in terms of damage. It's super safe. Um, sadly, we're only beginning to start seeing the, the long term effects of, of some of the athletes and the toll it takes on their brains from in this sports like this and kickboxing. People like Gary Goodridge or I, I believe Chuck Liddell as well. Uh, but yeah, no. It's it's this is to not be. Um, to not be, to, you know, this needs to be emphasized. Everyone's, oh, cool! I get to have a five round fight. Yeah, that's nice, but you can't treat these these human beings like they're video game characters. Their energy bar doesn't come back up. You know, it's the, you know, in terms of brain health, and it takes a huge, huge toll. I think that's such a great point that not even, you know, not even I, uh, uh, if I'm honest, have have talked about that enough. I think that's a really, really good point.
1: Well, boxing, you know, got rid of their championship rounds. So this is the new sport that's supposed to be safer than boxing. And you bring back the mm. championship rounds. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? You're like de-evolving. <laughs> like boxing already learned the hard that's way true. so that you don't have to. And boxing, the extra rounds are, are three minutes. Yeah. These are five minute that's extra true. rounds.
2: That's very true.
1: The next fight we're going to discuss is Chris Cyborg versus Amanda Nunes. with Chris Cyborg... Losing to Amanda Nunez by TKO in round one.
2: Well, you know, it's crushing for one of the all-time greats in um, Chris Cyborg, um, who's just kind of just has, an, has an, kind of an astounding uh, astounding longevity and astounding uh, invincibility. I think this is the first time she lost since her first pro fight ever. It's just the, the level of dominance that she displayed might be might be the most impressive or the most severe dominance we've ever seen in mma male or female um so for her to get dropped what four times in 51 seconds and ultimately knocked out by amanda Nunes, you know as crushing as it is for chris cyborg it's it's as positively uh thrilling uh um for um, for amanda Nunes and, and, a, and a remarkable accomplishment in her and she she you know she does not have the longevity yet of chris cyborg but Amanda Nunes has beaten decisively so many quality opponents in the last few years that she is she is making a case if she can keep this keep anything resembling this up or just maintain. Uh, she's 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 building a case uh, to become one of the all time greats. She's already you know accomplished so much. Uh, it, it was just it was just incredible in terms of the technical you know aspect. Amanda Nunes is is. The hands are fast she throws really wide punches and they still get there faster than her opponents punches um she's just really really fast the opening the opening salvo i thought was the leg kick that um buckled chris uh momentarily and before chris could even get regain her footing not only had she eaten that leg kick she ate a one-two on the jaw and she 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 took it because she's so strong but it just amanda Nunes has some some ridiculous speed a lot of people talk about her power and i'm sure her power is something but her speed, her hand speed, is just is something else at this point. It's 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 pretty remarkable. So, you know, huge accomplishment for her. Um, you know, really really tough for obviously for for fans of, of Chris Cyborg. But yeah, I mean, you know, one of those one of those one of those things we always see, right? It's an amazing, an incredible, awesome fight that's also really sad, right? Because that's just the way it goes. There's two sides of that coin. The best amazing fight in the world is going to do some damage to at least one of the people. And and that's always um, cool, but also tough to watch.
0: Watching that fight, I just remember hearing the thing from boxing, which is speed kills. You could be powerful, you could be strong, but if you're fast, holy shit, all that goes out the window. And the thing that impressed me most about this whole thing wasn't even a fighter on the card. It was actually Valentina Shevchenko. Because she took Amanda Nunez to her limit, and she's always been undersized. So that makes me think, there's got to be something to be said about fighting at her natural weight class. And even then, I think Valentina can drop down to 115 if she has to, because she doesn't cut that much all the way to begin with.
2: No, I think she told me once she walks around like at 138. Um, That's just crazy. Uh, compared to what most people do. So she, you know, if she cut like other people cut, she would be fighting 115. Yeah, she's just so good. It's now, now I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. Now we can start appreciating how how good Valentina Shevchenko is. If like if her beating Joanna that way for the fourth time in her life um, wasn't enough, uh, now we really are starting to have proper perspective for how close she fought Amanda Nunes. Is Valentina is just she's she's one of those people that's so skilled that she could probably you know, fight anyone and she'll never really be out of the fight.
1: I think we all thought Chris Cyborg was the Terminator. Like she was invincible.
2: Yeah. I, I had no idea how to pick it. I did. I, I did think Nunes was a real threat. I thought either one could knock out the other because of her speed. I thought it was, I definitely thought it was possible. I didn't, can't say I predicted it. I think, and that's in a similar way, maybe the Ryan Hall BJ Penn fight, like, you know, when it happens, it's shocking. The way Ryan Hall beat BJ Penn. But at the same token, I kind of, as crazy as it might sound, I kind of thought he had the ability to do exactly what he did. So maybe that one stands out as another shocking one that also maybe shouldn't have been so shocking. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it was shocking in the moment for sure. And then you're like, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> yeah,
2: right, right, right. Yeah, like you can't let Amanda Nunes hit you that many times in, in a minute no everyone's gonna get unconscious so it's shocking when she does it but at the same token you're like oh yeah no you can't let her hit you in the temple and the jaw 15 times of course you're gonna get knocked out like so it's it's a little both
1: with chris cyborg versus amanda nunez i kind of had the feeling like kind of like you where you know i don't know what's going to happen per se uh, i thought chris cyborg was going to win but when i actually saw it happen i was a lot more shocked than i thought i was going to be Because going into it, you know, anything could happen in an MMA fight. Amanda Nunes hits so hard, but then seeing Cyborg just get dominated like that and then finished, I guess because my eyes have never seen that before. I've never, other than that Muay Thai fight, but forget that in MMA, I've never seen Cyborg even challenged to a great extent. And the thing is, I have seen Amanda Nunes challenged. I've seen her lose in, in MMA, so that wouldn't have been as shocking. But when my eyes finally saw it happen, I was just like, what? I'm, am I watching this? Is this happening? Is this real life? <laughs>
2: I think that's a good point. Nuñez is just getting so much better, and she has such a big upside that, it, yeah, she's she's rapidly improving.
1: Also, what you said. Nunes has like crazy reach. I think in the tail of the tape, it said they only had an inch difference, but I don't think so. I know. Yeah, I don't agree with that. I think if you go from armpit to knuckles, I think Amanda Nunes is much longer. It looks like it, right? Yeah, because Cyborg was throwing straight punches. Yes. And Amanda Nunes was coming out with looping punches and her elbow was still bent. That means that she still had (laughs) more to drive through.
2: Right, I know. She's really long arms. Yeah, it's 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 incredible. She reminds
1: me a bit of Deontay Wilder, where it looks wild, which in form wise it is, but it's still crazy accurate.
2: Yeah, exactly. Overhands, overhands can be and, and hooks can be can be uh, can be the right thing to do when you, if you're a certain type of person, right? Like even if they're it, work, it works for her, it works for her. while well. there's technique to it. It's not. It's not crazy. There's technique to it, and she just throws in volume, right? She trusts herself. That one, one I saw in slow motion. I don't know if you, I don't know if this stood out. It was against the cage. One of the hooks, like Amanda had her head turned away because she was like weaving or trying to duck. She loaded up before she could even see where, where I, I'm imagining where Chris was. She loaded up with the left. Through the left, looked at Chris maybe a millisecond before it landed, but she just knows I'm gonna I'm gonna keep throwing right. Like I good things happen. I'm being backed up. Chris Cyborg's backing me up against the cage like she's done everyone. I'm not gonna freeze up. I'm gonna keep throwing, and I think there's a mental strength to that too. I don't, I don't care who you are, what you've done to other people, when you're. Amanda Nunes, and you've grown up watching your your compatriot uh, and and uh, and predecessor, even though it's now a peer and contemporary, like Chris Cyborg, do what she's done. It's you. You are a mentally strong person if you can push past that and not hesitate. You know George Saint Pierre says he hesitated in his first fight with Matt Hughes, even though he was capable, clearly, of beating him. Mentally, he wasn't ready. Uh, and Amanda Nunes trusts herself and mentally is was ready to, to, in addition to physically ready to, to, to give herself the best chance. And like that fight could go different another time. That was a fire fight. Anything can happen in a fire fight. Um, but yeah, it was, she deserves all the credit in the world. It was a clean, uncru- uh, you know, uh, fight without controversy, and it was it was amazing to see.
1: It's kind of a cliche to talk about the mental aspect of MMA and just talking about the other person had the mental edge over the other person. But with this fight, I think it's not cliche. It seemed like leading up to it, Cyborg felt really disrespected by Nunez and she really wanted to prove something. But with that said, in the last three or four fights, she looked really composed and she looked really good and skilled. But then when... Uh, nunez came out just guns blazing and no respect i think something clicked in cyborg's mind where that composure that she had shown in her last few fights went out the window and it was old cyborg just coming rushing at her and the thing was when nunez got hurt she immediately reset her feet and she was moving her head whereas it looked like cyborg she's a veteran but she doesn't have veteran moves it didn't look like for when she gets hurt cuz Cyborg didn't reset her feet, she didn't move her head off the center line. It was just back to business. She she got hurt, I don't care. I'm just going to keep coming forward throwing ones and twos. And I think that's what was her downfall was the composure that she showed in her previous fights. I think that would have matched up really well against Amanda Nunes, but Amanda Nunes just like pissed Cyborg off and that's the exact kind of fight that Amanda Nunes needed to knock her out like that. Cuz Cyborg was running into her punches.
2: No, I think you're. I think I think that's a really good observation. I feel like I don't know this, but I feel like Chris Cyborg in the in the last uh, couple years that she's been working, or a few years that she's been working with with uh, Coach Jason Prilow, she's gotten better, right? We've seen her be calm and collected, and I think if she had been training. With Jason for even longer at this point, I think you know then she would have been more prepared. Whereas you know you know she just you're right. She just instead of like saying okay, I got hurt, time to be smart, trying to do trying to do X, Y, and Z, stay away. She reverted to her old self. Um, She's making progress along those lines. Uh, I bet progress that if she continues to work with. Or Jason, eventually, you know, she can deal with that. But, yeah, I mean, some people, that's what we love about certain fighters, right? Like, do we ever see Vangelia Silva, her former teammate, respond? and Like, as far as I can tell, still, like, they're each other's spirit animals. Like, do we ever see him uh, respond in any different way? No, and sometimes it's tragic, but we also love it about him, and that's kind of what they are and who they are. And, yeah, it's, it's some people, that's just what they are, and it's probably what allowed them to become great. They could have never become great without that, but there comes a certain opponent where it might hurt you, yeah.
1: Cyborg should have never went full shoot the box day. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, that's tough, man.
1: Because when Nunez got hurt, immediately she reset her feet. She started right. moving side to side and moving her head. No, that's right. And even when she was throwing, the way she wings her punches, it allows her to slip. So she was always trying to evade. And every time she got hurt, she was like, Okay, I got hurt. I gotta change my angle. I gotta reset. I gotta move. Cyborg didn't do any of that.
2: I wonder if now that she's now that she's gotten hurt for the like badly for the first time in an mma fight i wonder if now she can she'll 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 start making those adjustments because it's one thing to know that rationally or to cognitively know that but if you've never been put in that position um you 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 maybe never really believe someone's going to make you pay you know like subconsciously you never really believe it and so you respond a certain way amanda Nunes knows people can make her pay because she's lost a lot for that level so maybe she that helps her maturity even though she's young that helps her maturity. She's like, "Oh no, people can hurt me. People can stop me. I know that, <laughs> so I'm really gonna like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really focus on if someone stuns me, backs me up, do all these little things to collect myself with you know, kind of pragmat, uh, pragmatic humility. So maybe now that Chris Cyborg knows she can be hurt, I'm sure she knew it in her like rational head, but deep down she's felt it. Maybe. It'll help her, you know, be able to to do that. Maybe not. I don't know. She's a beast and she just likes to go forward, which is part of what I, you know, I love about her. But, you know, maybe.
0: It would be interesting to see in future matchup if she utilizes more of the wrestling and her ground game because she's capable on the ground and she's able to hurt you there.
2: I know. I think if she was on top of Nunez, I think that would have been tough. She's a she's a, from everything I hear. Cyborg is a is a is a really strong, uh, really strong grappler, especially on top. I agree with you. Yeah, that would have been inter- that would be interesting if they fight again.
1: Do you feel like this fight seals Amanda Nunes as the greatest female MMA fighter of all time?
2: So long as we just have those types of discussions as a community uh, in the right celebratory spirit, I don't I don't mind people falling down on this line or on this you know any anywhere they fall in this discussion, I'm fine with as long as it's not like downing other people. I think she's she certainly she certainly put herself uh, in in into consideration. I think. I I am not a fan. I'm a fan of Joe Rogan. I'm not a fan of every pay per view. Uh, deciding this person's the best person ever because that's what the, the promotion is saying. Um, so I don't know, right? There's no way we could ever know. I think Amanda Nunes has probably beaten more quality elite world championship level competition than anyone else has in in um in in MMA history as, as a woman. Um, we'll see what her, longe- what her longevity will be, right? What she doesn't have is what there's the domination for a decade that that Chris uh, Cyborg has. But she certainly has a, the beating soundly, the quality of opposition. I mean, like, how long did it take her to beat Misha Tate? Uh, how long did it take her to beat Ronda Rousey? How long did it—that fight shouldn't happen, but still, Ronda Rousey accomplished a lot, so she's among the greats. You know, how long did it take her to beat Chris Cyborg? I mean, that's <laughs> – she's putting herself in the argument. If someone says they feel, for X, Y, and Z reasons, Amanda Nunes is the best ever, they've, they've got some good arguments. If someone says, hey, she's amazing, but let's see if she can put together, you know, the type of uh, string at, at the top that like someone like Chris Cyborg has done or lose a title and come back and win it again, people don't realize Misha Tate's a two-time world champion. Like, if they want to say that, you know, that's cool. It's a tough thing because those conversations, right, like they're a mix of like – greatness which is incalculable and and not quantifiable and it's a mix of like skill and it's a mix of accomplishment and sometimes those are different things so it's tough to say but she's you know I don't I'm not mad at anyone who says they, they feel Amanda Nunes is the best female fighter ever but I do think there's other people in that conversation you know um Joanna Jacek had a really amazing string uh, of dominance uh, as well as a champion. So I think there's a few people in that conversation. If someone chooses Amanda, I mean, they have plenty of good reason to choose her.
1: I never thought about it until kind of researching for this podcast. I was looking at a record, Amanda Nunes, and she finished Jermaine Durandomy. Yeah. She finished Sarah McMahon. She beat Valentina twice. She beat Misha Tate. She retired Ronda. She finished Raquel Pennington and she finished Chris Cyborg. I mean, it's just, just as far as record goes, I don't know if there's any woman in MMA that has a record like that. There's other women who've had longer winning streaks. Like if, even if you go to Japan, you can find that. But as far as the murderers row of people that she finished and has beaten, man, just that record stands by itself. Now, to your point, now she has to kind of seal her legacy. Because once you have the title, now you have to fight five-round fights all the time. And can you do what GSP did? Can you do what, what Anderson Silva did? That we don't know. But her chase to become double champ is pretty legendary now. It is. It really is. Let's move on to the next fight. And this will be the last fight we'll cover. Which is uh, Michael Chiesa versus Carlos Condit. Uh, with Michael Chiesa winning by a unique one-arm Kimura in round two.
2: Well, that was that was such an amazing fight, right? Just really, really remarkable fight. Such uh, so much action, so much uh, position reversals, and so many submission attempts in a in a relatively short fight. Uh, I, two two really remarkable, uh, well-rounded dudes that also are just incredible at jujitsu. Um, so I always always like seeing grapplers um, do these exchanges. A couple of near falls. Carlos Condit had you know a type of arm bar straight arm lock from his back and Michael Chiesa that will tap out most people and Chiesa reversed it. Just just a remarkable remarkable fight. Um uh, both guys look really good. I'm glad no one seemed to have taken a ton of damage in the fight itself in terms of, you know, brain trauma who knows what happens in in training. Michael Chiesa still looks big. He effectively looks really really strong at welterweight. That's good to see because of course he was moving up in weight. He is so tall. He's tall for a welterweight. So the fact that he was fighting a lightweight and was a really great lightweight as well, you know, maybe he's got a really good home. He's saying, he's telling everyone, listen, I should have been here all along. I'm world class here. I'm top ten, top five here um, at at welterweight. Maybe he is. I'll tell you what, if that's if if he has a lot more energy, a lot more conditioning, a lot more felt strength at 170. And if he's fresh enough, his skill set's good. You know, he's a really funky, uh, effective uh, boxer. He has really good wrestling. Uh, I feel, and he's got amazing uh, jiu-jitsu from on top uh, on the bottom. So I, I think I think he's definitely an automatic contender by beating someone like Carlos Condit. The finish was really cool. I like that. Um, yeah, I liked it a lot. He, you know, I think you have really good control with the one hand. Um, the kind of the gripping of the of a double wrist lock, so to speak, the the primary, if if, the, if your hand that you're gripping your opponent's wrist with is the primary hand in, the, in that situation, you have really good on that with the gloves. You kind of just get more friction or lock it in uh, a, a little bit better. What he did there by releasing his right hand and, and just kind of stabilizing the hips of Condit to, without having to step over the head like is traditionally taught with his leg, I mean, it was it was really cool. I don't think a lot of people have seen it, but there's no reason it can't work. Obviously, when we when we see it done that way, it was, uh, yeah, I thought it was really really neat. One of my students was funny. One of my students texted me as soon as it happens. Like, he was a beginner student. He's he's loving jitsu He's like, oh my goodness, Miko Kiesa just finished that with with one arm. Basically, he wants to learn how to do that now. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's very possible. I just. Most people don't do it, but there's no particular reason you can't if you really have a strong primary grip on that. It was, it was interesting. He finished it with one hand and finished it at a, at a strange angle. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what, what an impressive impressive uh, finish over a true, a true all-time great in Carlos Condit.
1: Yeah, I think dimensions-wise, Michael Chiesa is exactly the same height and reach as Carlos Condit, which makes it even
0: crazier how he fought at lightweight. You're not, you're not lying. He still looks like he's filling out. He looks like Rumble Johnson. <laughs> it's like, Jesus right. Christ, did you, were you always that big? No, he used to look
1: scrawny. Like, yeah. this guy is like a toothpick, but now he's filling out.
0: Yeah, right, right. It's like he's training for, like, a Zack Snyder movie. It's like, <laughs> what's going on? I mean, they need a new Superman and all, but geez.
1: No, he used to look like a homeless dude, but now he looks like <laughs> a Spartan. Yeah. Spartans,
0: that's right.
2: That's that's the difference between uh stereotypes for homeless people and Spartans. Basically, just muscle mass. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everything else styled similarly, uh but 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 just more muscle mass.
0: <laughs> so another thing that i thought was interesting about the Kiesa Carlos Condit fight was even though he was able to impose his will on Carlos Condit, Carlos Condit has always been susceptible to strong wrestlers. So I do want to know. How does Case deal with other wrestlers within that welterweight division that he might not be able to take down? Is his striking going to be enough? Is his size, which is still sizable at welterweight, going to be able to minimize some of the damage he takes? Or will he say, you know what, middleweight's the move for me. I'm going to move up to 185. (laughs) Because he still looks like he could fill out.
2: He's taller than Daniel Cormier, who's the heavyweight champion in the world. So who knows, right? Um, Yeah, no, that's a good question. A good couple of questions. I think uh, I think I think I think Mike's got a well-rounded enough game. I think his his striking is good and unorthodox enough. His wrestling is good enough, and his submission game certainly is good enough. Where he's just hard, and his durability and conditioning—it's it's just going to be hard to beat. Like it's no one's no one can easily beat him. I don't care who they are. It's not going to be easy for them to beat him. Some guys can put him on his back and maybe hold him there for a bit. Uh, I don't know, like a Tyron Woodley or something. Um, but I think I I, I think his skill set is such that he could definitely compete in the top um, top five um, there, you know, and everything after that is just you know who has a better night. But uh, I don't think he can out wrestle everyone in the division. But I think he's hard to hold down, and I think he can threaten off his back. And he's scrappy, and he can scramble, and and he could he could jab people up a little bit too. So I think he's a tough matchup for people. I think there's people who will beat him, but I I think he's uh, I think he is definitely uh, capable of being an elite welterweight.
0: I would love to see him against a wrestler who I don't really like to see get like a Colby Covington. That would be a fun matchup. That would
2: be a good fight. That would be a really good. That would be a really really good fight. Um... Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Uh, be interesting to see if he could submit. I'm really interested to see if anyone could like submit. You know, Colby. I think I'm most people are not going to be able to keep Colby off of them. Yeah, they're going to fight off the cage and off their back. And I wonder if anyone's good enough to to create scrambles and and um, and do with submissions or to deal with his conditioning. Mike Brown, Colby's uh, uh, head coach, has told me, and he's you know he's coached. I mean, he coaches a ton of amazing fighters and amazing condition fighters and world championship level fighters. Um, he says that Kobe has the best conditioning he's ever seen in any athlete ever. Um, so that, yeah, it's like he says it's something you don't really necessarily notice or see, you know, just from his fights. But that's its own thing, right? Not only do you have to deal with a really good wrestler, but you have to deal with a real good wrestler who just won't tire out. So, yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, and I like Colby Covington personally. I, I I really dislike everything he says publicly. Personally, he says really nice things. I've driven him to the gym. I like he's a ni- he's a really nice guy. Interpersonally, he's a very considerate, <laughs> thoughtful, interested human being, and polite, and all this stuff. And everything he says publicly is just uh, you know abhorrent to me. Uh, but so I wouldn't say I don't like him. I wouldn't say I, don't, I want him to fight because I don't like Colby. I definitely don't like whatever Colby's playing on TV. That's for damn sure.
1: Yeah, do you think that's kind of a facade then that he's kind of playing a heel?
2: I this is, you know, I can't pretend to be an insider, but my feeling is this. Colby has political beliefs that you that maybe the three of us would disagree with. Uh and he's also turning it up to 12 as a character for public consumption. So I do think he's trying to be a pro, a pro wrestler, but I I also think he pro- yeah, he probably he probably does like Donald Trump a little bit. that's about that's that's my best guess I think I think we would probably have some 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 debates with him on important matters and that would make you maybe make us not like what he stands for but I just I I think the whole being an asshole I think that's something he's trying to do and trying to be because he doesn't seem like one and I haven't heard he's one in the gym but I do think that stuff has consequences you know even if you're doing it for a show it's you're not an actor you know it has consequences
0: you actually wrote about it in your Conor McGregor piece where Conor had to whisper that could be it's just business. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I wonder if Colby will ever get in there with someone like uh Kamaru Usman, where if the Nigerian nightmare just takes him down and starts wailing on him and then he just says like, hey man, it was just a, it was just hype. I'm just building it up. Usman's not gonna take that lightly.
2: No, right? People don't. And and if you were if you were doing it for show and you're fighting someone for whom this is not a show you don't want to be in that fight. I don't care what your skill set is. If if this is a game to you and you go against someone who would never consider this a game, you're in over your head. You know, in some deep, deep fighting sense, you're in over your head. Uh, that's a tough position to be
1: in for sure. You know, this UFC was kind of sad for me because there was a lot of UFC legacy fighters who lost. You know, you had Chad Mendes, you had BJ Penn, Cat Zingano cyborg and then condit and condit's always been one of my favorite fighters because when he came out he you know he was the natural born killer he was just so good and his style was so fan friendly but when i saw this fight and the way it turned out you know if we watch his last several fights it wasn't that big of a surprise because he's been losing on the ground and even historically he's lost on the ground yeah he's lost some of his edge i think You know, maybe, you know, there's some head damage going on. His reflexes aren't fast enough. But as far as strategy wise, he's still doing a lot of the same stuff. It's just that the rest of MMA, it seemed like it evolved past him. Kind of what I'm seeing with, you know, Anthony Pettis also. Even like Carlos Condit's first fight in the UFC where he fought Martin Kampman. Condit has that thing where he runs at you like Holly Holmes with the one two, which creates a collision for the clinch. And Martin Catman beat him in the clinch and he always still fights like that. So he runs towards grapplers and they grab him and then they take him down and they control him. And lately, it seems like he almost loses a sense of urgency on the ground or it was interesting to hear. I think it was Greg Jackson told Carlos Condit, hey, Kios is breaking. And it's like, no, he's not. And if anything, it looked like in the last several fights, Carlos Condit tends to break on the ground. And he had a lot of sense of urgency in the first round, but in round two, when he got taken down, it almost seemed like, oh, fuck, I got taken down. And then that Kimura came so easily, you know, where I think that's one difference in the past, where as soon as it hit the ground, I think Condit in the past would have just kept scrambling like he did in the first round, but he wouldn't have stopped doing that. But that's another weakness also is because his wrestling never developed to the UFC level. When he does create scrambles, it's jiu scrambles, not wrestling scrambles. And I think you need both. I think you need jiu-jitsu scrambles, but also wrestling scrambles. And I think that's the same problem Pettis has. He creates jiu-jitsu scrambles, but sometimes you need that wrestling to get back up or to get the top position, not scrambling to get a submission against somebody who might be really hard to submit.
2: Yeah, it's great. And it sucks because it's one of those things where you can't, I mean, you're not going to get good at it at 35. Like, you are not. <laughs> you're, I feel like wrestling generally... And broadly, it's something that very few people have been able to to learn uh, to to use it at a, at, a, at a high level, um, unless they've been doing it since they were uh, a kid. I think George St. Pierre, and he uses for with his blast doubles and stuff, and his and his tosses is probably like the only example I can think of. It's it's hard to catch up. You Can't really catch up to to wrestling. I, I feel you can catch up to takedowns themselves but the scrambles and the positional stuff and the riding time the rustlers do well it's hard to catch up to that it it is tough and i I don't know i think i mean you can't do it forever carlos con that has been doing this for a really ridiculous amount of time i think his skills are still at a top level i think there's no way he's as fast as he was i think there's no way he's you know the type of timing he used to have um and there's also the lawler fight yeah yeah no absolutely i mean that's just (laughs) that takes a toll you know, it just it just does. And also people have been scouting you forever. So even if your skill set is fine for modern Never may and his is, um, just you know, people are gonna people are gonna scout you. They've been scouting you since before they were ever on your own radar. And that's just tough to deal with. And you know, I think that fight with Kiesa is one it's just that's one he could have won, and it's one Kiesa could've won. When they, when they got that last takedown, he got that double risk control right from the start. And that's a really that's one of those moves where, like, hey, if you let someone lock on and, and you're really experienced, you're just rolling around at the gym and they're a real beginner, that's an equalizer move. You know, it's tough. And if someone's really, really good at it, it can get anyone. Um, I mean, you know, Carlos kind of probably never gets submitted with it. You see how far back his shoulder was bent? Look how flexible he is. He probably never gets tapped out to that. So he probably wasn't even super worried about it. Or, you know, maybe he was, but yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I don't I don't like I, I definitely would not give him any type of flack. It's just the guy's been doing this for like t- almost twenty years. You just you know, you you are not gonna be able to win forever. It's just there's just no way.
1: I don't think he or Robbie Lawler have ever been the same after their fight.
2: <sighs> it can't be. Robbie Lawler's fight with Rory McDonald was an uh, amazing one too. I was at that one, and that's just it's hard to watch. I mean Rob, Robbie won that fight, but it's still the amount of damage you take is just it's it's one of those it's one of those things we were talking about earlier. It's the beautiful, horrible things uh, we watch in fighting, right? It's beautiful and horrible at the same time.
1: But going back to the wrestling aspect, I think Ben Askren said it best when he said wrestling isn't just takedowns, right? What you are alluding to, there's a lot of ground fighting that people don't see. So Ben Askren, he kind of abandoned some of his wrestling outside of his takedowns in his early fights to try to do jujitsu, and he had a lot more struggle. And then he brought back his jujitsu ground fighting to mix in with his ground and pound and he's become that much more effective. And that's what I noticed that was lacking in Carlos Condit and some other MMA fighters who don't understand those aspects. But John Jones against Alexander Gustafson, the same thing, where Gustafson has gotten good at takedowns himself and takedown defense. But once they hit the ground, people are talking about how great of jujitsu was. But I felt, I felt like it was more of that kind of invisible wrestling that Ben Askren talks about, where immediately... Yes, it was half guard, but it was more like he was leg riding him to get that ride time. He even said if he's on the ground more than 30 seconds, he starts to wilt. And then he uses that quarter Nelson and he was breaking his arms down instead of immediately going for the back. Like Jiu-Jitsu, from there, you immediately jump to the back. And instead, he wasn't doing that. He was breaking his arms down. He was making sure he was flattened out, that, that he couldn't build his base and get back up. And then he quarter Nelson him. And then from there, it was all academic that's where the ground and pound came. And I was like, is he going to go for the choke? Is he going to finally switch from kind of invisible wrestling to, to jujitsu? And it's like, Nope, I'm going to pound him out just like Ben Askren would have. And I think that was the difference is. Gustafson probably has like, if they just rolled for submissions, they could have had a much more competitive fight, but he can't catch up to the level of wrestling that John Jones has.
2: No, I think that's right. I think you're right. I think you're right. You know, he has to keep it away from, he has to keep the fight away from that realm. Everyone does. Because you can't, you're not going to win that with John Jones.
1: And unfortunately for Carlos Condit, it was kind of the the same thing where he was an old generation fighter. Where if you have two styles, you could become a champion. And now you got to put everything together well and be good at everything.
2: Yeah, it's crazy how things how things evolve fast. And individual matchups, you know, I, I, and 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 age will will complicate things. I, I I do I feel like no one was talking about Carlos Condit's wrestling uh, deficiencies when he was a a title holder, and I think that Carlos Condit, who was a title holder even just few years ago, I think that one would still compete at the elite levels uh, now. Uh, I just, I just think um, you just, you just get older and and, uh, and and you slow down a bit in terms of your reflexes. Um, he is still kind of unbelievably dangerous off of a full guard in ways that people usually aren't. Uh, that's his game. It's not it's not that it's old fashioned and it is still works for him. It's just, it's not going to work for him, you know, forever when you're in your mid thirties and you've been fighting profession since you were like 18, that's, you've been doing it too long in terms of a health perspective. Um, yeah. Cause I, I mean, I, I just feel like, I feel like Carlos Condon is, is, is great in a lot of places. Uh, it's just that um, it's a stuff, it's a tough style matchup for, for um, it's a tough style matchup at his age uh, at, at, at this point. I feel like, you know, like he, is this going to be tough for him to beat the top guys at, at, at this point in his career? Even, even though I think his skills in and of themselves, uh, while if you can't dominate wrestling, you're always going to have an uphill battle. I think they're, they're sufficient. I just think it's the, it's the mileage that eventually takes its toll.
0: I think over time people always say, well, fighting has evolved. So yes and no human mechanics and your body doesn't change all that much. Sometimes with age just comes, your neural links slow down and certain things that used to be able to fire really quickly aren't quite there anymore. And like you said, there's enough footage of Carlos Condit out there. So you know what he's going to do next. Like oh, from the close guard, he's going to go for an arm bar from this side. And case might've had time to say, okay, let me just try to use my legs to just create leverage. so I could pull my arm out. Normally maybe five years ago, it might still be quick enough that yeah. even if you knew what to do, you couldn't execute it quite on time. But with time and Carlos's hips, maybe not being what they are and slowing down even just a second is more than enough time for a case to be like, oh, I'm out of there. Oh, I'm scrambling back up.
2: That's what I'm guessing.
1: It's not even age because Carlos Condit isn't that old. It's miles. It's the miles on his body. Yeah, exactly. for a young man, he has a lot of miles on his body. And especially when you're like him, where you don't have the wrestling. So you have to play on bottom. He doesn't have the same knees anymore. So his leg dexterity on the ground, if you look at his hip work, Like before he used to be able to get them into close guard, but he's not able to. I noticed that he wasn't able to swivel his knees like he used to be able to. So he kept getting caught in where one leg was up to do close guard. And then the other one was smashed into butterfly. And in the past, he used to be able to just relying on knee dexterity alone. He didn't even have to do the, the shrimping, just knee dexterity alone. He would be able to swivel that leg out. And this time he just couldn't do that. And I've heard BJ Penn say the same thing. He doesn't even like fighting on the ground anymore in an MMA fight because he can't even he can't bend his knees the same way and so much of his guard previously relied on his leg dexterity and flexibility and so with that gone you know you don't have that time in an MMA fight in a five-round fight to do the old school you know old man guard where you kind of cook him in your guard for like 10 minutes and then you can submit him with pressure and skill that's still deadly effective in the dojo but, if it took you four minutes to get somebody in the ground and now you got a minute to do something yeah. like that, you know you you have to rely on a lot of agility and athleticism, I think absolutely. you know, Carlos Condit had a terrible knee injury a couple of years back. So I think also it's the miles on his body. he can't he can't be as dangerous anymore because the things that made him dangerous that relied on that athleticism, that athleticism isn't there either.
2: I think that's that that seems right to me, I agree. And there's no shame in it, right? We're not criticizing him. Just, that's just because he's been doing this at a high level for so long, you get those miles. That's a badge of honor. So, you know, he can't do it forever, unfortunately. And he's still a great fighter. He's still effective. But I think that w- if there's been a drop off, I think that would explain it.
1: Yeah. It's like fighters like him or Dominic Cruz. You're just hoping they figure out, you know, maybe it's better to retire while you can still walk and be athletic with your family than, you know, be a 60-year-old in a wheelchair.
2: Yeah, I know, I know. It's tough. I mean, you know, people like that, they're, they're smart, they're, they have educations, they can do other things. But at this point, they probably don't feel like there's anything they would want to do. So you're you are an old fighter and you're a young man or, or woman. and Now you got to figure out like, because, you know, no matter how many millions upon millions you've made for your, um, <laughs> not employer, but the person who wrote checks to you as an independent contractor, um, you don't have enough to retire on. So it's a tough, I think that compounds an already tough decision to walk away. It's just financial necessity.
1: Well, I think this is a good way to end the show. How can people contact you?
2: They can find me on Twitter uh, at Elias Cepeda, which is E-L-I-A-S-C-E-P-E-D-A. That same spelling, if people want to write me uh, a letter, E-L-I-A-S-C-E-P-E-D-A, writing at gmail.com. I uh, always get letters there. I try to respond to as many as I can. Uh, So yeah, I check out my DMs. I check out my uh, my mentions. I'm not as... Active in Twitter as I, as I probably should be, but if you holler at me there, I'll probably see it. Thanks, Elias. Take care.